Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And uh, to real two really quick emails. Hi, Gabe and Connor. Hi, whoever this is, wrote this. this. Hold on, this is from Louise. Or okay. Louisa? I've been enjoying listening to Science Unscripted for a few years now. Keep up the good work, guys. And thanks for all the interesting broadcasts. Awesome. Thank you. Somebody yeah, who's been listening you. to us for years and now finally... <laughs> finally writes in. Writes. Amazing. And then, of course, there's here from Robert. Outed. Well, the truth is out there. Gabe has hair all over the place and does a mean cow imitation. Now we can rest easy. Cheers. <laughs> as, as if that's information that the world uh, needed to know. <laughs> Although your cow imitation is very, very good. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who missed our last episode, maybe a quick one. Mm-hmm. Very, very... Mm-hmm high fidelity to yeah. the original cow sound. Right. Um, yeah, study on changing cows for a future and a warmer planet. Um, we're going to begin with some science or yeah, medical science related to us human beings. This okay. Time. A positive development, and it's with regard to dementia, specifically Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, and getting at the problem of how do you diagnose it? So if you think that, for example, if I'm asking myself, do I have Alzheimer's or mm-hmm. am I getting it? Um, it's harder to get a, a, a true positive yes than you might think, or at least to I was Parkinson's aware of it. Parkinson's specifically, or to all three of those that you mentioned? Dementia? Uh, dementia is like the umbrella category for Parkinson's and... Other neurodegenerative... Alzheimer's, correct. Okay. Okay. Correct, correct. And if you want to actually figure out whether or not you have that, let's say you have some of the symptoms, general mental decline, I can't rem- remember things, mm-hmm. or communication issues. Yeah, yeah it's really important. Yeah. Sleeping. Um, one way to do it, and this is pretty logical, is to look directly at the brain with imaging techniques. Could be an MRI, could be... FMRI, yeah. Uh, I, you can do it in a number of ways. Yeah. But the what they would be looking for is brain shrinkage, the size of the brain shrinking over time or having already shrunk compared to the base, to the standard. And that would be an indication that you are developing some sort of neurodegenerative disease. Maybe we're not sure which one it is yet. Mm. And that's actually something that would happen before the symptoms even appear. If you had your brain scanned and it was shrinking, it might be a sign before anything else happens outwardly that this is developing. Mm-hmm. If you really want to prove whether it's one or the other or what exactly it is, you need cerebrospinal fluid, which is a fancy way of saying you need a spinal tap, a lumbar, a lumbar puncture. You need that to be analyzed. To be analyzed. So what okay. that, that involves, right? It, yeah. You bend, you lean forward and they insert a needle between your vertebrae. A long one, right? And they, yeah, and they, they take out this clear liquid. And the reason they go for that liquid, right, you've got a lot of different liquids in your body, is that that's the one that goes up and ends up reaching the surface of your brain and would collect or, or accumulate some of these nasty proteins that are connected with diseases like Alzheimer's. Okay. So you could take that fluid, take a look at it and say, hey, that looks like a, an amyloid beta, you know, or, or there's too much amyloid beta protein or peptides in there. Same thing with tau. And hence, you have Alzheimer's. And that's the way it is right now. The only way to analyze this is with a spinal tap. It's a a chemical uh, uh, say, a chemical test. Okay. And so what researchers at the University of California, San Diego have done, they're like, this is really intrusive, difficult, painful. Who wants, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to go for that. Let's let's do this better. And they have a handheld device in the testing phase right now. They've tested it. It seems to work where instead of looking for uh, molecules in that same way, it uses electricity. And it's extremely complex to explain how this works. And um, the way I envision it, I think the easiest way to understand this is it's more like if you have, let's say, a river of fluid going around Hmm. and you use this kind of electric test, it'd be like having a magnet in that river. 
And if the magnet has metal attaching to it, that would be the nasty, the nasty uh, peptides that mm-hmm. are associated with this disease, they would start sticking to that metal magnet and the flow of the river would slow down. Got it. And that's the electric current, uh, the, the change in the current that they would see. And they sure. would say, okay, and, and, and it's only that specific. Um, How exact is it? Do you... I don't, it, it's as sensitive as the procedures, as the other procedures spinal they tap. do with the spinal tap. Okay. And so that's already a win. Uh, what they're going to test in the future is whether or not they can do this with fluids like blood or saliva even, and possibly urine to see if it's that sensitive, if they can test it that way. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, we're looking at a, a, a diagnostically a much better future where doctors might go to a retirement facility yeah. and say, look, could you just give us a quick uh, saliva sample yeah. and where you can diagnose it that way. The weird... No, the easier it is, the, the more likely it is that those tests are going to be done. They're going to be conducted. Of course. People will, won't, won't mind them and they're, they're just easier to, to do. Right. And the tests can come to you much more easily. And, yeah. and w- the weird result or consequence will be that numbers will go up and everyone will think, what's happening? What's yeah. in our environment now that's uh, causing so much more Alzheimer's? No, mm-hmm. it's the, the diagnostic kit is getting better. One big caveat, um, some of the people behind this new handheld device stand to make a decent amount of money no, that's, on it. So that's always, that the, so, that's yeah. always the case. I know from, from, from a personal perspective, the easier it is to test my blood sugar, the more likely it is I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the diabetes companies are making gazillions of dollars on that. <laughs> but they're making my life and, and the lives of type 1 diabetics and anyone else who needs to test their blood sugar way, way better. So. Right. And final thing I'll say on this one is that if you can test more easily and cheaply, then you can also test earlier before mm. some of the symptoms appear. Yeah, of course. And based on the drugs that are coming, you might be able to treat in the very new, near future um, some of the symptoms of these diseases before they even crop up before mm-hmm. those plaques build up or the neurons get all junked up. So yeah. that's, that's a good thing all around. Just a little bit of news here. I'm going to read this out. Um, maybe you've heard about this or read about it online. Sickle cell can now be treated with uh, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. For the first time ever, a therapy that uses the gene editing technique CRISPR has been approved. In the UK, regulators gave the green light to treat two inherited blood disorders, among them sickle cell disease, by modifying blood stem cells in the lab and then returning them to the body. Sickle cell disease happens when a defect arises in hemoglobin that can cause severe pain, strokes, and organ damage. The CRISPR treatment is designed to replace the damaged hemoglobin with a working version that is normally active in a developing fetus. In clinical trials, 28 out of 29 participants began making functioning hemoglobin after the treatment and reported no subsequent pain episodes. The FDA in the United States is set to follow suit, concluding last month that the benefits far outweighed the risks in the case of sickle cell disease. So gene editing is now a thing. And just a reminder of what sickle cell disease does to you. Are you... Yeah, but put simplistically, it... it it's a defect in the in the red blood cells. And because of the shape, if you have this damage in the protein in the hemoglobin, it prevents blood or it it, it means that blood the blood doesn't flow as well yeah. for, for them. Ah, I love good medical news. Yeah. Really good that, medical that, news. That one and and like I said, in the in the US they're about to improve approve it. It's this is coming. Gene editing is now a thing. It's here. So on to some softer science. Uh or the kind of science that isn't necessarily going to save lives, but might change opinions. Um, this study is connected to something I've heard a lot here in Germany and nowhere else. And this is the line, Gabe, you might have heard it too. Um, do men 
and or do women get more attractive as they age? Do they get how quickly do they get what, what less is this, attractive? A survey? Who did they ask? So what they did is well, they asked three hundred people. Okay, and they took what they did was they took twenty people uh, headshots effectively. Yeah, and they aged those headshots. And at first, that kind of confused me. Like, well, you could have taken headshots of people who are actually older, but this way, you truly establish with take the same person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you seen these? They, you showed me a picture of yourself yeah, as look, an eighty-year-old man. Yeah, I just uh, here's another one that uh, my wife took of me recently, and it'll artificially age you. There I am at age. I don't know what. What do you think that looks like? Eighty-two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really old. There, confronted. You're with, all wrinkled up. You're. You still have hair, though. That's a good thing. Well, it means the app probably isn't very good at predicting <laughs> what, what my hairline is going to do in the future. No, it's, it, you're, you're really confronted with your own mortality when you look at that kind of stuff. They did the same thing with the 20 faces, and they had 300 people rate them for attractiveness and um, femininity or masculinity. I'm going to kind of forget that second category for now because mm-hmm. it just wasn't as important. Yeah. The conclusion, at the age of 40, women start every, from, from, from every decade or for every decade from there on out, they lose 10 percentage points or 10 points of, of attractiveness. Women get uglier over time. Well, everyone, Is that what you're trying to say? Every, everyone or does. Or less attractive? Every, everyone does. But oh, everyone does. Yes, okay. but specifically women starting at age 40, yeah. between age 40 and 50, they're going to lose 10%. Yeah. Between 50 and 60, another 10. Between 60 and 70, another Got it. So Got they're, it. They're, it's dropping. Men, it is different um, according to this... Georgetown study from so the, we get a less, from the United less attractive States. but less less attractive yeah that's a one way of <laughs> making it really easy to understand no so we the drop off for men also happens starts at age 50 okay and it's about five percentage points per decade okay uh, so you could make the argument it's less women it, it begins earlier and it's the, the decline is steeper it's later for men and the decline is softer you could say well how much of that is just cultural right we have I don't. I don't know. Um, some sort of sexist biases toward women. They're judged more harshly for their for their appearance always. So this fits into that pattern. The authors of the study view it more in terms of evolutionary biology. That the face. Numerous studies have shown that the face is strongly facial attractiveness is strongly associated with reproductive health. Mm-hmm. The ability to 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 bear children or to have children to create children, and that that is what's probably, the older one gets, the less likely that one can reproduce. In this case, that uh, the or, le- the less likely in, in a woman's case that she could carry a nine month pregnancy to term healthily, and that it. the child would be healthy, and that on some sort of evolutionary biological level, that's what we're um, uh, punishing them for in terms of attractiveness. That mm-hmm. attractiveness is is, a, is attached to less fertility. Well, I mean, it's less sense. of a punishment. It's just a, it's a natural feeling, Len. If it's evolutionary, you have no control over it. Right. Right. Another, like, more, one of the concrete aspects is also specifically the, the jawline. This is where they were looking at where, how... Yeah, the 82-year-old version of you, you had a horrible jaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Uh, really our, scraggly the, the male... Uh, the misshapen. Bio- yeah, the biological male um, jawbone grows at about the same rate in men all mm-hmm. the way through. And with women, there is a change, and the jawline becomes more masculine. Yeah. Um, in, in, for both, for men and women, the jaw becomes more masculine. That also may play into it. Somewhere I was thinking, there's a joke to be made about it being a, a mandible. It becomes more of a more of a oh. manly, masculine-looking thing over time. Yeah, or a jo- a less jo- jowl joyable. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> going nowhere. Jowls. That's going nowhere. I, I, mean, I tried. That was a good try. So if you want to read more about this or are interested in the subject, the study is called Understanding the Impact of Aging on Attractiveness Using a Machine Learning Model of Facial Reg- facial age progression, excuse me, and it's in facial plastic surgery and aesthetic medicine. One little bit here before we go. Eye contact. We're making it right now, Gabe. Well, we do it a lot, yeah. I would say. Well, speaking Compared of, to the participants in this study. Well, we're in Germany. I, another German kind of, German stare. Will you let me get to the science here? Yeah. When two human beings speak to one another, mutual eye contact is extremely rare, according to a study out of Canada. Researchers at McGill University and the University of Quebec outfitted participants who did not know each other with eye-tracking glasses while they discussed an imaginary survival situation. While they ranked items they would need to survive, the researchers analyzed where the participants were looking, in particular, how often they looked at each other's eye and mouth regions. In total, 12% of the time was spent looking at each other's faces. Mutual eye contact, when participants looked each other directly in the eyes, simultaneously, Stop looking at me like that. I'm, I'm trying to make eye contact. Stop it. I want to beat the 12% number. Mutual eye contact, when participants looked each other directly in the eyes simultaneously, only happened 3.5% of the time. No way. 3.5% of the time. Out of every 30 seconds, one second? One second out of spent looking at it. Is that math? Yeah. Okay. The researchers found that when mutual eye contact was made... Participants were, mo- were most likely to follow each other's gaze afterwards, a phenomenon known as subsequent gaze following that is important for social dynamics. It's more like... So it's good. It's a good yeah. thing to look each other in the eyes of what we're doing right now. We are locked right now. I'm locked and loaded, Gabe. I, am, I'm I can't stop looking into your hanging eyes. Hanging on every single word you say, although it's kind of... Di- but when, be- when people do this, then you follow whatever the person you're looking at, whatever they're looking at. And that leads to better conversation, better social dynamics. So, yeah. so let, the next study would be me, how to... Let yeah. me, let me, yeah, let, hold, hold that thought. Let me correct myself right now. Mm-hmm. It's more like one out of every 20 seconds. Every 20 seconds we spent or in this study. One second out of 20. Roughly would be something like... So the whole time when you're speaking with another person, if this, if this study is correct... Well, I, that's the thing. I have an so issue. Where are you it. looking? You're looking I, off into space? Or? I, I think there's a follow-up study that has to be done where you're not imagining a survival scenario. Because when I do that, I am looking all over the place, trying to, you have to visualize creatively new things. And whereas, when, you're, when you're doing that, you're not looking at someone's eyes. Correct. Whereas I think if the conversation topic is, what is your favorite color, Gabe? Then I'm going to be more, you know what I mean? I'm going to be more inclined to look right at you and you're answering, I don't know. I think. Do you really want to know my favorite color? Not really, but go ahead. Green? Yeah, yeah, that's the color of your sweater you're wearing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I, no, that's a good point. So different kinds of conversations lend to different yeah. or, 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 or make eye, direct eye contact, mutual eye contact more likely? Yes, probably. I, I would think so. I think you Because could, if you're you looking at someone 3.5% of the time while they're, telling, while they're opening their heart to you, that yeah. w- you wouldn't be yeah. a good conversationalist. Looking at a tree? <laughs> A bird in a tree? No, one thing that Germans uh, said to me years ago when yeah. I first moved here, yeah. and I'm talking 15 years ago now, was that they have a tough time with Ameri- – they're talking about Americans because I'm American – and how they never make eye contact. And I just thought, well, whatever. It's, that's mm. how we are, and it's not a big deal. I've been here long enough now and have gotten so familiar with the extended long eye contact that it now – I have reverse culture shock going back because it is strange to be interlocuting with someone who's – looking everywhere but you. So what do you do when, you, when you've got someone with a, a squirrelish-esque uh, gaze behavior? What do you try and like... Put my head in front get, of their get, eyes? Get in front of their eyes? I, yeah. do, I do this. 
hey, <laughs> hey, over here, bud. Right here. No. Um, I, the, I understand the, it because the moral I keep of the story is that we don't do it very much, and it's good for social dynamics. Yeah. So try to do it more often. Yeah. One thing I've heard. Uh, I, and I don't have anything to back this up, is that if you want to practice it, because it is something that requires practice, hmm. that when you're talking to a, a young child or even a baby, that it's a perfect time to practice. There's no social consequence. You're not harming anyone. You can just get familiar with looking how ma- someone... Wait, hold on. How many babies have you stared at? I talk to all sorts of babies all day. <laughs> every... No, I don't know. It, it, it's an idea. Because it's hard. What's How do you get over it? How do you... It's a big hurdle if you're not used to it. Maybe next time you're speaking to someone, just... Pay attention to how often you make or how long you make direct mutual eye contact for. And uh, and how it makes you feel. Yeah. Did it help the social dynamics? Let us know at suadw.com. Welcome to our new studio, our new science and scripted studio right here. Yeah, this is this is awesome. Thanks to the colleagues that set, that set this up. This is where we're going to be doing interviews when we post the videos on YouTube. This is where we're going to be doing them. Uh, and for all the people who are listening on the podcast platforms right. or in, in just audio form, um, imagine us in a... In a you nice, can watch this. Well, yeah. Or, if or, you want. Or they can imagine it. There's a black backdrop. And there's uh, the Science Unscripted logo behind us. Anyway, um, welcome to the new studio. Welcome to Science Unscripted. And today we're going to be talking about, what, fasting. Fasting. Um, I, I tried it once after, I tried to, fa- I wanted to fast for like 10 days. Made it through. Straight. Yeah, made it through two and then um, found myself in the middle of the night gorging on <laughs> Fruit Loops. After, oh my. In the middle of the night, I took down like a box and a half of cereal. Your, I couldn't, I your couldn't, blood sugar, your blood sugar must have gone from what fifty yeah, <laughs> up to five hundred. Yeah, at that point, I was a type one diabetic, yeah, unfortunately, but um, I failed at it after two days yeah. after at a feast. Yeah, uh, I, my 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 feeding and fasting phases were, were got all messed up. Thank you. Switch things up. That's the science we're gonna be talking about today. Yeah, I've so I've never I've never ever tried fasting. I've just eaten regularly my whole life, which is. Part of the reason I'm, I'm really especially interested in a new study from the Max Planck Institute on Aging, it's about fish and what happens with fish. You can't always connect to humans, but in this case, there are some clear lessons for us humans to learn about when and how we should fast. Science Unscripted. So, hi everyone. My name is Adam Antebi. I'm a director at the Max Planck Institute for Biology of Aging in Cologne. And we recently published a paper on fasting aging in the killifish that's gotten a lot of attention. And so we're happy to share some of our work today. So before we talk about what happened with the fish, one thing to clarify, I think, right at the beginning is what can we say at this point at all, I guess, about about fasting? Does it work? Does it cause people to lose weight? What, what, what does it actually do? And what does the research say about it? Yeah, well, a lot of people are engaging in intermittent fasting or caloric restriction uh, because it, has, it does have health benefits. It, it seems to lower blood glucose and reduce cholesterol 
um, and reduce, in some cases, age-related disease. So I think there are clear health benefits for humans and model organisms as well. Um, the question, though, is, is it true at all ages and for all people? What did you do in your experience? You were, you were working with fish. What did, what did you find out? Well, uh, what we saw was when we fasted young fish, there, there are vast changes in genes that go up uh, and down. Um, when we looked at older animals, the number of genes that went up and down were much smaller. And we thought uh, at first, well, maybe they just don't respond to the fasting part. Yeah. But actually what we found was that they don't respond to the refeeding part, the feeding part. And they seem to be stuck in this permanent fasting trap, even though they're ingesting food. So what, they're really anabolically resistant in many ways. What is the difference between those two phases, when I'm fasting and when I'm feeding? What, yeah. What's yeah. the difference? Great, great question. So when you're fasting, what happens is you turn down protein synthesis and you also start to break down fats and glucose for, for whatever energy you need. Um, when you refeed, a lot of that's reversed. You turn on protein synthesis, you turn on you know, fat production, and, and you gear up for growth. And one of the things that we discovered from our data, looking at this, how, what genes were going up and down, was that there's this energy sensor called the AMP-activated kinase. And this detects low energy and tries to increase the energy production so you keep things in balance. And what we noticed, so this, this enzyme, uh, this energy sensor, is made of three subunits, three components. One of them is called the gamma subunit. And what we saw was quite striking. And that is that the gamma-1 subunit was going up in the fed state in young animals. The gamma-2 subunit was going up in the fasted state. So they were in this inverse relationship. So, so, and with aging... The gamma-2 is always up, and the gamma-1 never comes on. So we, we think that it's this fasting refeeding cycle that's very important for the health. You have to turn up gamma-2 during fasting and turn up gamma-1 during the feeding stage. <laughs> I, I don't know how you would do these things with a fish. Is it yeah. possible to take these two sliding levers gamma one and gamma two and 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 slide them in the older fish to make them to make them young again can you can you is can you do that yeah so so um so this is why we use these model genetic organisms because we can manipulate them genetically very easily and so our idea was well if the gamma one is low in an in an aged fish why not activate it genetically by introducing extra copies of it and, and changing one uh, amino acid in its sequence to activate it and, and ask what happens to the fasting response and what happens to the metabolic health. Yeah, absolutely. What, what happened? What happened? <laughs> yeah, so, so remarkably, what you see is in a young animal, they have a normal fasting feeding response. And in an old animal, they have a youthful fasting refeeding response. And it looks perfect. And they have much lower levels of inflammation. Um, and this one amino acid change caused these fish to live about 10 to 20 percent longer. If, if you did an experiment like this on humans, what would it look like? How, how would you do it? 
Yeah, I think before we would go to humans, well, I think what we need is a nice experimental design where we can actually measure human response to fasting and refeeding and look at what's happening to this AMP kinase mm -hmm. and, 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 and really understand, does it have a similar role in the fasting and the refeeding state, yes or no? And then do we see this kind of subunit dance going on, yes or no? And if we do see that, then we can think about designing uh, drugs or other interventions, maybe dietary interventions that ensure that this gamma-1 gets expressed at the right time. So it's really, you need both, the fasting and the refeeding phases. They have to work in synchrony. One can't overrun the other. And I would assume that such a trial would start with geriatric patients, with patients whose, um, whose levels are all off anyway, right? Well, I think that's a good question. We probably want to have people who are, say, 50 to 65 as those who can respond to fasting, refeeding, and those are 65 and older who might be less responsive as, as a comparison. I think you, you have to have age uh, stratified groups, I think, to really get some insight into this. But I think the important point is that although intermittent fasting may be a, a, a good regimen for some people, I think you have to take into consideration the age of the person, how fit they are, whether they, they're overweight or whether, um, whether they, um, they need muscle mass, all those things have to be taken into consideration. So you shouldn't just Google the internet and just take down you know, some intermittent fasting regimen without consulting a doctor or, or having some knowledge about that. But we're really just starting a lot of these studies. And I guess as a, as a final message to people out there who are considering fasting, in the future or already doing it, is it safe to say, I mean, this is me interpreting what you've said, that after a certain point, after age 65, you, you shouldn't be fasting unless in consultation with a doctor, because if you're doing it, you might risk uh, watching your own muscle mass waste away and become, becoming weaker. Is, is that fair Without to say? Without getting anything out of it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something people need to consider on an individual basis. And, um, you know, it, it may very well also depend on how you refeed and regimen that you use um, for, for your intermittent fasting. So, yeah, I think it's very important not to just assume that it will be healthy for you un until you've considered the, the studies and, and talked to a, a nutritionist about this. Yeah. And that was Adam and Tebby talking to us from the Max Planck Institute for Aging, which is based in Cologne, Germany. Real quick here, he wanted to especially thank the team members responsible for that study. I'm going to read them off here. Roberto Ripa, Christina Polidori, and Roman Muller for their work on that project. Stress that they were the ones who did the science, that, he was, that Adam was just kind of managing it. Um, and I wanted to stress at the end a point that he made that if you fast, uh, you should do it in... Yeah, in, in consultation with a doctor. But my next door neighbor, this guy named Jochen, he's retired. Uh oh, did he not go to the doctor? He did a ph phenomenal job of fasting. He's in, he's in <laughs> what, is it, what, what does that mean? Well, I saw him le about six months ago. You know, I don't know if he's listening or watching this. Kind of pudgy. Mm -hmm. And then went through a fasting regimen that, that went on for weeks, two or three weeks. And then emerge from it, the guy's looking just like a million bucks. After two to three weeks? Yeah. Okay. 
I think what he from what he said, he, he only had tea. That was essentially the only thing he had. Wait, oh, he went full, like no food. He went, it was a okay, long fast. This was not that's intermittent extreme. fasting. Yeah. And the guy, like I said, he, he, he helped me. A birch tree fell down in our backyard and he, it was, it was on his part of the yard and he gave me the wood. He was lifting, I don't know, 200 pound, uh, portions of birch tree. So he hasn't lost the muscles. He's, he's, he is he's slim not, down. He's, he's not lifting 200 pounds. Oh, with my help. Okay. I had one yeah. and he had okay. the other. Okay. So fasting, fast, again, anecdotally, I think that it goes back to what Adam was saying. Anecdotally, fasting can do pretty amazing things. Not anecdotally. The science shows in model organisms. That, Certainly at intermittent fasting, it has yeah. absolute effects. Cardiovascular, diabetes, metabolism, it, it, it can help you. But, but we don't know why yet. But talk to your doctor in the best case before you go, especially on something as extreme yeah. as your neighbor there. And in the meantime, we can all hope that in the future, there's a pharmacological option for us to get some of the benefits of fasting even into older age and maybe live longer, healthier, happier lives. That's it from us. If you have anything else to say, say it. <laughs> Science. W. Made for Minds.